I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. While preparing to interview Moira Davey, I started to really try and figure out what it is that I love about her work so much. Is it that she's able to deal with the most mundane, everyday subject matter in such a personal, unpretentious, electrifying, simple and complex way? Is it her subject matter that's so appealing? Artists that she's interested in, diaries, ephemera, hang-ups, letdowns, preoccupations, inspirations, quotes, books, thoughts on artists. Is it that she speaks of those things in the first place? Is it her form, the simple elegance of it, which is a through line in all her work, from the writing to the films to the mailers? I'm trying to write in the form of the work that I want to read. She writes in the title essay of her recent book, Index Cards. That seems like such a simple and easy thing to do, but it's really the most challenging place to get to. Moira was born in Toronto in 1958, grew up in Montreal, and lives in New York now, where she's been for the past 30 years. She's the recipient of a 2020 Guggenheim Fellowship, and just last month, she opened a major retrospective of her work at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. I visited her at her apartment in New York that she shares with her husband, Jason Simon. We sat in her light blue tiled kitchen, which I recognized from Lego Des, and I asked her about what her day-to-day life was like. I'm a, I'm definitely a morning person. I really I love the mornings, and that's when I'm most productive and clear-headed and have energy and enjoy. I really enjoy writing in the morning and. Um, I read, I read later in the day. I'm like one of those people who reserves reading for later. Is it because reading doesn't feel like you're being productive or like it's work? And Sometimes it's work. Sometimes, you know, it's research. And sometimes it's just pure pleasure. Mm-hmm. I heard... Um, I guess he was a professor. Well, not a professor. He was faculty at Skowhegan last summer, and he's a filmmaker, and he told me that his morning routine is he reads for three hours in the morning from Mm. when he gets up, does not look at emails, nothing. Mm. It's just three hours straight of reading. And Mm. I was so, I don't know if I was envious, Mm. but it just seemed like such a wild thing to do, to just get up in three hours. (laughs) Yeah, well... Okay, so I read an interview with an artist. I uh, can't remember. He might have been a photographer. And he talked about, yeah, how he always read first thing in the morning. And he did it to, you know, to inspire himself. And he used this great expression. He said, and I also do it to steal a little bit. And, of course, you know, like nobody, nobody wants to admit to that, but um, I think everybody does it. Everybody reads and watches to some extent to, to steal a little bit. I mean, that's part of what getting inspired is all about. It's, uh, you know, wanting to respond, I think, to what you're, you're reading and seeing. When you feel that kind of inspiration or something, you feel that there's something that you want to take, was there a realization that, that you, you'll be filtering it through your own voice anyways in a way of course yeah it's yeah it's all about that it's about 
taking something and, um, you know, internalizing it, processing it, and using it to make something new that's your own. Mm -hmm. And just by virtue of doing it yourself, it always just happens. It usually happens, I think. Um, I mean, I've, I've channeled so many people recently. I've channeled Peter Hujar. I've channeled Chantal Ackerman. I've channeled Julia Margaret Cameron. I've channeled Derek Jarman. It's all over the map. And in all those cases, it has worked. Is it a kind of way to get off the couch, so to speak? Like to just... Um have a starting point or somewhere to work from or does it have more to do with the actual like wanting to respond to the, something that you're interested in I usually have a reason there's usually something driving me towards those those people you know in, in the case of Derek Jarman it was an invitation to respond to his work from the Walker Arts Center in the case of Julia Margaret Cameron it was stumbling upon a grave and a Colonial Cemetery in Calcutta uh, with the name Princep on it. Hmm. And I immediately associated that name with uh, her, one of her models. Uh, she herself was born in Calcutta. And so that, yeah, that led me to her very unexpectedly, to looking at her work again, to reading about her, to writing about her and um, to even making photographs where I was channeling her a little bit, like her her photographs, her portraits of, of children, of young people in particular, which, um, you know, to my mind were very modern. She had this other way of working that was very Victorian, which most people are very critical of. But she also had a very modern way of working, I think, in mm. her portraits. Yeah. You're talking about a lot of artists who you love and who you respond to. And I feel like that's so much a part of your work. But I feel like that's always in concert with your own personal experience. And I guess just the everyday. Mm. And I'm curious where that interest started like when you started to want to make work just out of your everyday environment mm. i think it started with the very first pictures that i made i i photographed the people around me i photographed my surroundings um, and i think then I'm not sure where the interest in process actually originated, like being interested in making a work that, you know, reflects back on its own process, which, you know, ha often has very much to do with the everyday. But, you know, that became more and more of an interest and a way of working that I, that I wanted for myself. And... Um, and to tap into personal experience and and stories and um, but again always you know talking about um, how how where does that, where does that impulse come from like making that that interrogation part of the work itself. Mm -hmm. 
did it have to do with that process of like or maybe a convenience of why not use these things around me or did it was it more something that had to do with how that work looked or felt or once it was made well i think it it has to do with the kind of person i am actually i'm a bit shy and it's easier for me to work completely solo to not be interacting with people so much honestly i think that's that's how and I'm just guessing that it's the case with most artists. Like it's a personality thing. You're you're either really comfortable with people and enjoy being with people, and and so you know find a way to work uh, communally. You know, like like film directors or theater directors, or you're more solitary, and um, and so your uh, you know your practices. Um, yeah, you, you go about, you know, finding ways to work uh, where you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. I just find that when you look at so much art, it's so often made out of the everyday, just someone's, the, simp- the simplicity of one's experiences. And it almost seems like an obvious thing to do. But then you're in your own space, you're in your own life, and the things around you, they almost seem so commonplace that um, it's, it's a real challenge to make something out of it, I find. Mm. Like, if you have inherently dramatic subject matter, then the thing is, art, like the, it's already there, which is another challenge to make interesting art out of it. The other thing that I think about also, and that I'm curious about, is what in your everyday life, what do you deal with? Like, is it the stuff in your fridge, or is it the... It has been. It <laughs> was once. The, it was once about my fridge, and... Um, you know the, the kind of psychology of of the fridge that was definitely a theme in in a video called 50 minutes that was your first video yeah i'd actually i made a super a 30 minute super 8 film in 1990 that um i only showed a couple of times around around that time just shortly after i made it and then i didn't i didn't really work with the moving image again until I made 50 minutes uh, and it came out in, it was finished in 06. So what was the psychology of the fridge about in that piece? It was about, you know, being made really uncomfortable by um, an overfull fridge, like a fridge that's stuffed with food, mm-hmm. about being kind of grossed out by that mm-hmm. <laughs> and always like wanting to manage the fridge, like you know the food is getting consumed it's not it's not like rotting stuff down there that that i don't know about you know like you know some kind of creepy thing in the recesses of the fridge mm-hmm. and um so i um yeah and yeah it's it's i guess it's it's about it's about again it's about a certain personality trait also there there are plenty of people who have no problem with uh, a totally out of control fridge. In fact, it makes them feel uh, safe. I think, but for me, it's it's the opposite. You like a sparse fridge. Yeah, like a fridge where you can see everything <laughs> and and not. Um, yeah, there's no mystery as to what the fridge holds. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seeing someone's fridge is always an interesting thing, or someone's 
grocery order at the checkout counter is always something that I find fascinating. Mm-hmm. I think just people's things in general. Yeah. There's something very, I don't know. There's yeah. an intimacy to it. There's a curiosity. Yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I love that, uh, what you just said about the grocery, you know, what's on the conveyor belt at, at <laughs> the supermarket. It's, uh, it is inherently fascinating, you know, these, 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 the objects that make up um, a person's life. And, uh, and I think what, you know, with photography, it takes things that are, ordinary or even base and it has the ability to transform a bit of fluff you know that Brassai found in his pocket or a cigarette butt that Irving Penn photographed uh, with you know a very dramatic lighting and suddenly it's utterly transformed and and that's one of the things that photography does best I think that you know, that surprise element that it can have. For sure. And I think that's also why sometimes, you know, something staged or something spectacular doesn't necessarily hold the same kind of fascination as as something, you know, really um, tiny and um, insignificant. Mm. Your background is in photography. You're a photographer at heart, but you're so much more than that. You're a you're a, a writer. You're a filmmaker. You do all these things. But I guess I just wanted to ask you about the films. And I'm not sure if it started with Fifty Minutes or Lego Des. Fifty minutes. It was Fifty yeah. Minutes. Yeah. So I write I write a, a script, a narration. Yeah. And in Fifty Minutes. I was trying to memorize it and perform it for the camera. And and it took me three years to make that film. And then subsequently I started recording the passages and then listening to them and repeating them so that I didn't have to memorize. And that speeded up the process um, immensely. Like I made Lego Des in under a year. So you're... I you, write a text. You write and then record. I read it, I record it, and then I listen to it through an earpiece and I repeat what I'm hearing. Right. And it's a way of not having a voiceover that's simply like a text that's being read, which is very, very difficult to to make interesting. I think you, you really, you need the right voice. You, It can happen, you know, like... There are many examples like Days of Heaven or Chris Martin, you know, Sans Soleil, you know, films. There are many examples, but it's not easy to do. You know, often the voiceover is just this kind of very stiff thing. Right. Whereas if you're doing my method, it's closer to speech, like to listening to someone thinking and speaking so it's slowed down and there are repetitions and there's stumbles and mistakes and there's there's a kind of spontaneity to it there's actually a little bit of a performance that's happening that's not simply a, a memorization and a regurgitation or a you know reading uh reading a text mm-hmm. now when those films came out did they also come out as books or as texts at the same time, or was that only afterwards? Uh, Lego Des actually started 
as a text called The Wet and the Dry. Mm-hmm. And that was published by Castillo Corrales in Paris. They had a series of little pamphlets. That was the first iteration. And then I changed, I, I rewrote it somewhat, and I changed the title to Le Godes, and that became the narration for the film. Mm-hmm. And why did you decide to have both? Um, I mean, I think I always intended the wet and the dry to be a narration for a film. And they just, they they asked me to, um, if I wanted to publish something with them. And I said, well, do you want this text? And they liked it, so. Mm-hmm. It's such a different experience watching one of the films and reading the texts. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe there's something to that that kind of relationship or discrepancy that's interesting it's like you're getting to experience Mm -hmm. yeah and then it got republished a few times after that as legodas in a few different books and right yeah and i mean i write them to be read for sure like i when i'm writing them i want it to be something that can just be read um and then i actually often have to cut out parts for the performance part because they just don't work as a performance they're they're okay as something as a text to read but maybe not as a performance i'm jordan weitzman and you're listening to my conversation with moira davy that we recorded in new york to find out more about the show and to see more of moira's work follow us on instagram at magic hour podcast 
and um, or he's actually he's one of the publishers at New Directions but it became like his project and he had gotten to know my writing because he had friends who were artists who passed on my books to him so all the texts are reprinted and they and they're collected not all of them not no not all of them but but a, a good chunk of them yeah but there's some I'm not sure if some of them are edited or not, but I guess the one thing that I've been curious about is noticing the different combinations of image and text. Mm. Like in Notes on Photography and Accident, in the original publication, the text is interspersed with pictures of your tables and surfaces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This version, it's different. Yeah. How come the choice of... So it was the editor's choice. It was Nicholas Lenert. Mm-hmm. Um who edited that selection and he knows my work really really well and he actually he chose the photographs and oh really yeah there was a limit on what how many photos could be like a bud it was a budgetary thing so it had to be uh you know a, a much smaller number and yeah, he he made he made the choice and the sequencing and mm-hmm. of pretty much everything the the text themselves and then where where the images would appear and i mean i i've always liked that and in, in in other publications you know that get reprinted in different ways like just seeing what changes what what might get edited out what might get added um the different photographs i don't know it's all it's always been kind of interesting oh i get me. that yeah yeah i mean just talking about that essay notes on photography and accident those pictures of the surfaces those were inspired by Hervé Guibert's photos or something no you know I didn't I actually didn't know Hervé Guibert's work until later like maybe eight or ten years ago I was introduced to him by the Mm. photographer Heinz Peter Knass Hmm. and I was introduced to his writing by Pradeep Dalal Mm-hmm. Pradeep gave me ghost image to read hmm. so we have you know something in common like he photographed his desk a lot and I photographed my workspaces yeah work tables yeah so I want to ask you where that the sort of uh, idea to make those pictures come from but I'm also curious about what Hervegi Bear's work means to you mm. this is always the qualm of the interview is where to like you know mm-hmm. you know it's like you have and this is i still don't know how to go about it because you have these multiple things you're interested in and what yeah. direction do you go i in? know okay well i'll try and address both, both <laughs> those things so the tabletops you know i had this job teaching uh, in switzerland hmm. where i would i i would go twice a year I think for two weeks at a time. And they would put me up in this little studio. It was in uh, Geneva. And I would have, I would set up a work table. And uh, and I think there, it was, that's where it started. It was like wanting to record these different work tables that, that I was setting up uh, in, the, in different places, either here in the apartment or there in Geneva. And... I don't know if I had an intention. I think I was just doing it as like a kind of diaristic recording of what I was reading, what photographs, what what work I was showing to students, what 
I was having them read, so I would have, you know, video cassettes and, and diff, you know, Xeroxes of things that I was reading. And so it was just, like, kind of, like, keeping sort of, like, um, yeah, just, like, a record of a, of a moment in time. And then the second part of your question, what is it that I relate to in, in Guibert's work? I mean, so when when Heinz Peter Kness told me about his work and started pulling up images on on a laptop, we had been talking about Francesca Woodman, and I had been telling him how important her work was to me. And he looked at it and he said, well, there's someone that is similarly important to me and I think they even might have something in common and so he showed me Guibert's work and I could see what he was talking about the you know the certain similarities and in their photographs and but then I think I really got hooked when I read Ghost Image which are the essays about photography and um, you know the way he writes about loss like the lost photograph for instance and this idea that you know he also writes quite a bit about the difference between writing and photography and he says that um you know writing is melancholic and so like he he gives the example of uh photographing his mother and then developing the film and realizing that it's all clear and just when he thought he had photographed his mother at the perfect time in her life, in the most beautiful light, he had banished his father from the whole shoot. The film is, there's nothing on the film. There's no image. So he writes about it instead. So instead of having an image, he has a description. He has a written description of the image. And for him, that has a whole other valence. It's like, he, you know, if if the photograph had come out, he would have this thing, he would have this object, but he wouldn't, it would be different. It would be separate from the experience that he had of photographing her. And that's the thing that he can capture in writing that eludes him in the photograph. Mm. It's beautiful. It's a really beautiful thought. It is. It really is. You know, as you're, as you're talking about that book, I'm thinking about it. And the first thing that comes to mind is something that he said that always stuck with me, talking about being able to write about photography only because he was a photographer himself or he was trying to be a photographer himself. It resonated with me, maybe in relation to doing these interviews and also being a photographer or maybe even trying to be a photographer. Mm. Some feeling that that's some sort of imposter syndrome in a certain way. In that so often when I do these, my questions are born out of these curiosities or these like questions that I'm asking myself at the same time. And mm-hmm. that's where a lot of the, mm-hmm. that curiosity comes from where I'm going with that is that I feel like so much of your work does that for so many people. Mm-hmm. Like there are so many artists, friends of mine who love your work so much. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I always ask, you know, I'm always curious as to why, and no one can ex- quite put a finger on it, mm-hmm. which is, I think one of the why reasons. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's something, a big part of it is the relatability. You're speaking about things that so many people are thinking mm. about. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's true that if you, if you have a, a practice, like an art practice, and 
you write about it, you know, among other things, in the context of other things, that, yeah, you're, you're able to draw out um, things that are, that are going on um, in the way you work. You're able to articulate those things or you're able to put them in relation to other, other thoughts um, uh, or in, in relation to other artists or other writers or filmmakers or whatever. It's, it's, uh, I really love making connections. And um, it's something that happens, I think, in most of my writing. It happens, but, you know, I was... Um Again, I don't mean to reference notes on photography and accident too much, but maybe it's just that I, I reread it so it's fresh in my mind. But I was thinking when you made a transition from something to talking about the ampersand, mm-hmm. just the idea in the first place to speak about the ampersand is a curious one. And it, but it's something that I don't know any you know anyone might notice but never speak about. And is it that? <laughs> it's a device, and <laughs> yeah. I and it just. I, I haven't I haven't read that essay um, as recently as you, so it's not really fresh in mm. my mind. But it was a way. I think it was just a way to transition to Virginia Woolf mm-hmm. and and her idea of reading with a pencil. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk about that. Hmm. Reading with a pencil, so always underlining. Always, ha- you know, taking notes or yeah, margin notes or notes in a notebook what's your note-taking system oh i just have notebooks and i and i and i if something strikes me if something resonates uh, i'll write it down so you'll write it down the notebooks they must build up yep do you go back on them once you've done it or sometimes i go back and i i highlight things that that I that I want to come back to sometimes I don't sometimes that you know they just go into a drawer and I and I never visit them again unless I'm you know unless there's like a a reason like I I'm looking for something mm-hmm. um but yeah I mean I star things too you star are, things yeah definitely mm. in a different color ink or I should. I should use. I should use your method. I should get some red ink because it would make it easier. Right. That's what I was saying. Yeah, using red ink always to cross things out. I think it's just because I read that a long time ago. Is that when you cross something out in red because of the boldness of the color, it makes you feel like you've accomplished something more or something. So just so starring or highlighting sometimes no tabs ever uh, tabs yeah that's tabs. what that's what okay. i mean by highlighting okay I, I don't use a highlighter yeah. i see i see yeah. and do you do you date your notes i do mm-hmm. i do but i've written about people who did not date anything you that's know like right. jane yeah. bowles with her letters and her her journals she didn't date uh and and it's I find that admirable, actually. Really? Yeah, because I think dating is very anal, actually, hmm. and uh, I think it denotes a kind of freedom and and generosity to just kind of let go of things and not that's, need to hang on to them. You that's know, to, so interesting. To, to control 
things, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting that you see it as a sense of control almost, or, or like that not dating is a kind of freedom. And I totally, I, I, I see why, but I see, I always think of dating in a different way. Like when you do something in the moment, whether it's even like a to-do list or a note, the impulse is not to date it. And then I always do afterwards because I love looking back on something and knowing when I was thinking about it or mm-hmm. when I was, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just a totally anal thought that I have, <laughs> but <laughs> there's something that I love. Like I love when I look at someone's work and I do see that date and it might even be, I know this sounds a bit crazy, but it might even be like this love of looking at the person's stamp, the rubber stamp that they were using uh-huh. and there being like a beauty in that. No, it's true. So, yeah. Some of those stamps are, um, are really beautiful. It's funny. This isn't, this is a little bit, um, of a tangent, but I went to see the um, the Donald Judd show at MoMA, mm-hmm. and the one thing that that really um, caught my attention was his handwriting. There was one series of engravings, and his handwriting was um, was kind of print handwriting, but he had like, a, he kind of did his ease a little bit different every time. Hmm. There wasn't a consistency to the way he did his letter E. And I, I took pictures on my phone. I found that really, yeah, no, really I... interesting. And so different from his work, his, you know, his boxes and which are totally about control and, um, perfection and consistency and repeatability like his letter he didn't repeat his letter e the same time Mm. it's just making me think about this thing that's been fascinating me lately which is this idea about how we all project ourselves in a certain way whether it's in our art or just in our lives and it can be controlled or like we think that we're we're putting something out there that people are responding to but then there are the all these things we do like judd's ease that are almost unconscious and those things end up being the charming things mm-hmm. or the interesting things. Mm-hmm. Everyone does it and it's just so fascinating, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah. yeah, I know. Um, certain people's handwriting, I find, even if it's like objectively ugly or scrawled or whatever, it, it reveals something about them or it, it reflects something about them that I love. Um, hmm. And no one ever thinks their handwriting is is good or interesting. Everyone, some you, people do. <laughs> my mother loved. My mother used to love her handwriting. She she really did have perfect, perfect like school teacher handwriting. She was very proud of it. Was she a teacher? Yeah, at different times in her life, she was a teacher. Not not consistently, but she taught English. Yeah, really taught English. Yeah, what level? She taught high school. Um, I think she mostly taught high school, but she wasn't like a career teacher. She all, she was a social worker at one point. Um, and then she had all these pretty interesting government jobs. Um, in the, like, after my father died, she worked for Equal Opportunities for Women. She was on the Immigration Refugee Board of Appeal for a long time. Hmm. In Canada, yeah. Hmm. Very, very interesting. What's your litmus test for whether a photo is working or not? Oh, that's that's a really that's a good question. <laughs> uh, 
it's really it's different in in every case you know in in the four by fives the portraits that i was doing i really want the eyes to be sharp mm-hmm. but hmm. they're not always sometimes a photograph you know it, it can still be good um and um with you know the small color photographs it's it there has to be that those are a lot harder because you know i shoot i shoot those in 35 um often i'll i'll you know shoot a whole roll of one desktop for instance you know with different angles and light and boring is a big um uh, threshold, I think. I had a student named Matt Porter. He's a photographer. When I when I taught at ICP, and he wrote in his um, thesis, some, I think he had a chapter called "No More Boring Photographs," mm-hmm. and that always stuck in my mind. And because I think that with digital photography, it's, I think it's a lot easier to to make boring photographs and to kind of get away with it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But what's the difference between boring photographs and maybe something that's really mundane that might seem boring to someone else? Like what makes it interesting to you? You know, now I work with these, you know, grids of photographs. So Sometimes it's, you know, it's the combination of photographs that that makes something work, that makes something interesting. And it's not so reliant on a single photograph being, you know, absolutely perfect, whatever that might mean. Mm -hmm. At this point, it's really contextual, like what it is. Mm -hmm. But I still come back to this idea that my friend, the filmmaker Jennifer Montgomery, talked about this idea of transformation. You know, that, like, she would talk about, like, waiting for the film to come back from the lab to see if it had been transformed. And that that meant that it had become something completely unexpected, unpredictable, um, uncanny, whatever. And I applied that thinking to photographs. Is it like the act of putting four edges around something and maybe this idea that the photograph isn't the thing itself, it's like something new? Like sort of that, that Winogrand thing. It's like the photograph isn't the thing itself. It's a new fact. Right. There's a lot of truth to what he said about... Was, he was talking about a gas station, right? It's like you, ha- you just sort of have this hunch that it, it might, you know, mm. become something. It might, you know, become something other than itself. And so you take the picture. I think I know what you're talking you about. The, the, the Robert Frank gas station. It was a gas station that Robert Frank took from the Americans. and he, and he said, Yes, yeah. And like he's saying, there's no way that he could have known that could have exact, been a photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's this whole thing of the late, the latent image. Like you have to wait to to find out if if mm-hmm. you got it or not. Right. And I guess a good lesson to just keep on making things and trying things out because you never really know mm-hmm. what's going to actually hit or not, or what you're going to mm-hmm. discover. It's true. It's a really good thing to keep in mind because. Um, you can become stuck. You can feel like you're in a rut. You can feel like you're at an impasse. Like nothing, there's nothing new possible in photography anymore. Um, 
because there's so much of it now, it's kind of overwhelming. So yeah, it is a really, it is a really good thing to remember. Mm. So when you started doing the mailers, how were you thinking about the kind of imagery that you wanted to use in those? So I was in Paris and I was, I decided to stop making photographs for a few years and just write and work in video. And I was asked to be in a show at Marie Guy Gallery in New York. And I couldn't deal with the idea of making <laughs> photographs that would have to be mounted and framed and created and shipped. And um, those are always um, really hard. Well, framing is, is a very hard decision. And, uh, and I remembered that I had, for John Goodwin, I had uh, mailed folded and mailed some photographs to him for so that he could make a little poster for a show that he did in Toronto I think in 07 and I proposed to them doing the same thing for their it was a summer group show at Murray Guy and I was making recordings in all the Paris cemeteries at that point and photographs and I somehow got the idea to photograph tables at outdoor cafes that after just after people had left so like their coffee cups and their their change and their cigarette butts and their crumpled napkins and whatever just like kind of evidence of of an encounter I'm not sure where that idea came from but um maybe it was like my first attempt in eons to do street photography again (laughs) Um, an easy way back in. Somehow I got that idea and I combined those photographs with the cemetery photographs and also with some desktops because I had a studio there. So I had a new temporary desk in the studio. And um, yeah, that's how, I, that's how it started. Yeah. Were you ever, was the whole, and the whole mailing aspect obviously and just the, the the ephemeral quality to them. I mean, the tape and the stamps and the addresses, just that whole graphic treatment. I was, didn't know actually what, because I'd only ever done it once, but not even with the intention that it would become an artwork. I'd, I'd mailed some photos to John. So I, I really didn't have um, a strong idea about the tape. And I was just using whatever tape was mm-hmm. in this, this little apartment that we were renting scotch tape and then I discovered the graphic quality of the tape and I started to use it very intentionally Mm. in subsequent pieces that I made were you ever into like mail art or like you know Ray Johnson correspondence school or like was that like ever not really no No, I wasn't (laughs) I wasn't thinking about mail art at all but I was thinking about taking the photograph and um, just treating it like a, a piece of paper like not a precious object that right. that needed to be matted and framed and and I enjoyed that aspect of it very much of like kind of returning the photograph to the status of of a postcard or um an aerogram you know that kind of thing just you know something um you know that that you touch you fold you, you mail it and it's all very simple right you have a major show up right now at the National Gallery in Canada. It's a big retrospective show. Mm-hmm. How does it feel? 
it feels really good. And I was <laughs> off site for the hanging. Really? Because other, I would have had to quarantine for two weeks and I, I wasn't able to do that. So with my assistant, Nico, we, um, we pretty, and, and, you know, working collaboratively with the curators and the installers, I think we managed it so well. I was, I was not confident at all about it, but I, it, it really, it really turned out well. Mm. Were you guys working with a model with a maquette? Not a maquette, but we had a big floor plan. Okay. And so they sent that to us and, um, and they sent, you know, little postage stamp uh, printouts of all the uh-huh. photos and the videos. Um, yeah. And we just, that was kind of like the first step. And, and then, Nico, there, there's one wall that's a kind of salon hanging of the black and white work, and Nico worked all of that out. Uh, mm. He did it all um, on on his on a on a laptop. Amazing. Yeah, go as soon as you can because who knows? Yeah, like you, if the you, red alert goes too yeah. high, they might shut. They might shut the museum. <laughs> it was like all the work was there for months. It was yeah. supposed to open in April, and the book also was um yeah. had just been shipped to the museum and wasn't couldn't you know wasn't available mm-hmm. and there's another component to the show also there's um you, you did a curation of pieces from yeah the with the curator andrea cunard um we pulled things out of the archives out of the museum's collection and um you know, works that I had an affinity for or that, you know, that bore some kind of relation to my photographs. There's the the Walker Evans subway photographs from mm-hmm. the 1940s. There's a Julia Margaret Cameron photograph of Julia Princep Jackson. Wow. The woman uh, who became the mother of Virginia Woolf. And... There's the Joyce Whelan film, Pierre Vallière, which, of course, is very connected to my most recent film, I Confess. That was collected by the National Gallery, so that's on a monitor. There's some edge photographs um, of tree roots, like really gnarly tree roots. Mm-hmm. There's a, a photograph by Gabor Selassie, who was my first photography teacher at really? Concordia. Yes. Oh, Montreal icon. Yeah. Amazing. A fantastic photo of people like lining up for a bus in a snowstorm. It's really good. Well, I, I really look forward to seeing the show. Thank you so much for doing this. It's a real honor and a, and a pleasure. And it's so nice to talk to you. It's really nice to talk with you, Jordan. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. That was my conversation with Moira Davey that we recorded in New York. This episode is produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and it was edited by Crystal Duhame. Original music for the show by Adam Feingold. Special thanks to Josh Lawson for the countless amount of time he's put into helping out with my intros, research, and photo selection for the show. To find out more about what we do, follow us on Instagram at MagicHourPodcast or visit us at MagicHourPodcast.org. If you're in Canada, be sure to visit Moira's show at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa. It's sure to be an amazing experience. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next time.
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.